Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? It has been quite a week in the Anthropocene. A deadly heat dome in the West, temperatures never seen in Canada before, and that hot spot, the village of Lytton, burned. Today, though, we bring you a show we've been working on about ecosystems that have stood since before humans raised the planet's temperature. Highly prized and highly contested old growth forests. They've been at the center of months of protest in a place called Fairy Creek on Vancouver Island. More than 300 people have been arrested so far in blockades. It's a fight the West Coast has seen before, but this time, climate change has raised the stakes. Today, the climate case for old growth and how one country moved to protect its forests by helping the people whose livelihoods depended on them. If you've never seen the really big, really old trees on the coast of BC, there's a reason those forests are likened to cathedrals for the sense of awe they can inspire. Without sounding completely gratuitous, it's the most beautiful place I've ever stood on this planet. And I've been to a lot of places on this planet. It's, it's extraordinary. It's so beautiful. And it's still possible to go and stand in the forest and experience the forest. Everyone listening, please go. <laughs> That's Sally Douglas. She lives on Salt Spring Island here in BC. And just this year, she made her first trip with some friends to the old growth forests of southern Vancouver Island near Fairy Creek. It was the first time Douglas had seen trees of that size. I have never even imagined that a tree could be so big and so tall as this grandmother tree. And the three of us wept when we saw the majesty of this tree and felt the energy of this tree. And I was so struck by looking at her feet, the amount of biodiversity, the amount of life that was at her feet was astonishing. And then to look up into the canopy, to look up into her height, to see the life that was in her canopy was really something to behold. After spending some time with her, we crossed the road, just a five minute walk away from her, and we walked into a clear cut. And it looked a little bit, the best I can describe it is that it looked like a war zone, that from standing five minutes earlier in possibly the most alive place I've ever stood on this earth, to now five minutes later be in a clear cut and to be standing in, I would call it a death zone, was, um, well, it was not lost on me, the juxtaposition of those two forests, the before and after. When I came home, I drove up the drive of our property on Salt Spring Island, where we're building a barn, an agricultural barn, a timber frame barn. And as I drove up the drive, I realized that it hadn't even occurred to me to ask any questions about where the wood 
for that barn was coming from, that I had believed that in BC, in Canada, we practice sustainable and renewable forestry. And possibly I had been very naive, but it certainly didn't occur to me that we could possibly be cutting down trees that are a thousand years old and older today in Canada. I mean, Clayquot Sound was an amazing time in our history. And I thought that we'd got it all sorted out back then. I thought that we had um, learned our lessons and come to some agreement and that we were doing things differently now as a result of the brilliant work that was done by those people in the 90s. I had absolutely no idea that it was still happening today in Canada. I thought our old growth forests were protected. sure there are others like Sally Douglas who thought BC's battle over old growth trees happened decades ago. You heard her mention Clackwatt Sound. It wasn't the first protest over old growth. The Nichalneth and Haida First Nations had led the way with blockades in the 1980s. But in 1993, the summer of protest at Clackwatt Sound was the biggest. Thousands came to the west coast of Vancouver Island aiming to protect ancient rainforests from the clear-cutting practices of the day, which included cutting entire hillsides from valley bottom to mountaintop. More than 900 people were arrested for defying a court injunction and blocking loggers from work. I don't want to live on welfare. I want a job. Go Good morning. My name's Lauren Dixon. I'm an employee of McMillan Bloodell. I'm asking you to leave the roadway now and allow our trucks and loggers to go to work. Thank you. There was international media attention, market pressure, political fallout, and two years later, the war in the woods was declared over. Sort of. Here's the forest minister for BC at the time, Andrew Petter. Today I am pleased to announce that the government accepts the Clackwood Sound Scientific Panel's report in its entirety. This will mean an end to conventional clear-cutting in Clackwood Sound. Key point in Clackwatt Sound. It didn't apply to the rest of BC. And even though clear-cutting practices have changed since then, and more areas like the Great Bear Rainforest have some protection, there's no blanket protection for old forests. As CBC Science reporter Eve Savory put it in the 1990s, they're valuable. So the old growth which shelters wildlife, cuts the storms, influences the climate, also feeds BC's economy. Now, last year, B.C. did bring in a special tree protection regulation that prohibits cutting of about 1,500 of the very biggest trees and the hectare surrounding them. Still, old-growth logging continues and not in a small way. The B.C. government says today about a quarter of the annual harvest is old-growth, which is usually defined as 250 years old on the coast and 140 in the interior. But two big things have changed since the 1990s. There are, of course, even fewer of those old forests left. When it comes to the richest ecosystems with the big, iconic trees, independent scientists estimate that less than 3% remain. Also, climate change has become a bigger part of the discussion. 
And it wasn't until the last 10 years or so that we're starting to see their contribution to slowing climate chaos. We'll get there in a minute. But first, let's zoom in from the forests to the carbon. Trees are the best forms of carbon capture and storage we know. But what might surprise you is just how debated the capture part is when it comes to old growth. And so this is where now the debates start, right? Because what people typically confuse is how much carbon is stored and how much additional carbon is taken up. Werner Kurtz has been studying carbon in trees for decades as a senior research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service of Natural Resources Canada. I'm leading the team of scientists and experts that uh, helps calculate the greenhouse gas balance of Canada's forests and the opportunities we have for for climate change mitigation uh, through forest management. Kurt says how much a forest absorbs depends on age. With young forests, the carbon is clear. The amount starts small and accelerates as the tree grows. And so the older the trees, the more carbon they take up. But like all organisms, you know, we don't grow indefinitely. Eventually we stop growing. And that's also true for trees. In older forests, as growth slows, there are conflicting accounts in the scientific literature about what happens next, whether that forest remains something of a carbon sink or becomes a slight source. Kurtz says the latter, though it can vary. And in fact, there are measured examples of old growth forests that are net carbon sources. Maybe not every year, maybe in some year they're a small sink, in other years they're a source, but they, it is unequivocal. Uh, despite the claims to the contrary by many, that this curve is age-dependent and it gets to zero or negative at, at the end of that line. That's just carbon capture. As for storage in old trees, there's no disagreement. So an old forest stores a large amount of carbon. It's like you have a lot of money in your bank account. But what happens to that account when you cut those trees down? The precise answer gets complex and depends, in the short term, how the wood gets used. Burning it for energy releases it right away. A timber frame building lasts longer than, say, newsprint. Big picture, Kurt says there's no carbon argument for anything other than leaving the old growth storage intact. Cutting down an old growth forest for the purpose of enhancing a carbon sink is totally futile on the time horizons that we're interested in because we would be losing carbon to the atmosphere that would not be removed for a very long period of time. So if we want to design landscapes that are active carbon sinks, then we need to look elsewhere. As scientists learn more about old growth forests, the climate case for their protection goes beyond carbon sources and sinks. Dominic de la Sala is the chief scientist at Wild Heritage, a project of the nonprofit Earth Island Institute based in Berkeley, California. We reached him at his home in Oregon. Hi, thanks for having me on your show. Okay, so let's dive into what a primary or old growth forest could be doing um, for the climate that other plantations and more newly planted trees wouldn't. What's different there? Yeah, you know, every time I go into these cathedral forests, I call them, I learned something new about them. And I started 30 years ago in my career as a biodiversity scientist, just cataloging the incredible biological diversity in these primary forests, mostly in the temperate rainforest, some of the boreal around the world. And we got a pretty good handle on why they're important for biodiversity. And it wasn't until the last 10 years or so 
that we're starting to see their contribution to slowing climate chaos. When you go and you hike through these forests, you can tell you're in a beautiful, magnificent, biologically diverse rainforest. But a lot of people are just now realizing that those forests are also big sticks of carbon. Then the forest in the northern latitudes, like in British Columbia and in the Tongass rainforest, we can call those uh, North America's lungs. We've got to do everything we can to keep it in the forest and not return it back into the atmosphere because we're in both a biodiversity and a climate crisis around the globe and in British Columbia. So we often hear that the younger trees are sucking up more carbon than the old ones as they're growing because they're growing faster. But then old growth forests store a lot of carbon. Does one of those matter more than the other? They're both important, but, you know, there's a lot of nuances to this. When you think about it, you've got an old growth forest that's been sitting out on that landscape with trees that are up to a thousand years or greater. That's the accumulation of centuries of carbon that has been pulled out of the atmosphere and stored in those forests. When they are cut down, most of that carbon returns to the atmosphere. If you replant or the forest comes back through natural processes, you're going to get uh, trees coming back. But there's a startup period, about 10 to 13 years, when the trees aren't doing much of anything. They're little tiny seedlings, so they're not really absorbing much carbon. And when they do eventually start to absorb carbon, they may do so at a faster rate than the old forest. But that, those big old trees are a big volume of accumulated carbon. So even though they're growing slower, they're accumulating more carbon than the small trees that don't have the kind of volume or surface area and needles to absorb that atmospheric carbon. So we need to be doing both. We need to be sequestering or absorbing carbon from the atmosphere and growth can do that. And we need to hang on to what we've already absorbed through those old forests and those old trees. We're talking about this because um, old trees are being cut in British Columbia and there's a lot of debate about that right now. What happens to the carbon in the forest when those old trees are cut down? Yeah, you know, some of it gets returned to the atmosphere quickly within a couple of years. You think about an, all, an old growth logging operation, um, the slashes left on the ground, the needles, the branches, the bark, and even some of the uneconomical uh, un 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 trees. And in at least the clear cuts that I work in, in southeast Alaska, almost 50% of the standing volume in that forest is not used. It just sits there in a logged clear cut. And that carbon eventually is going to go to the atmosphere. It might take a decade or so. And a lot of it will go into short-lived products that wind up in the landfill. You know, if it's a piece of paper within a year and uh, short-lived products wind up in the landfill and they decay their carbon is released to the atmosphere. Where in, in comparison, those old trees are sitting there for hundreds of years holding on to their carbon instead of the products that we produce winding up in the landfill within a year to a few decades, depending on the product. So eventually it's going to work, it work its way into the atmosphere. And we're not even talking about fossil fuels. And when you get that log, you put it on the back of a logging truck or you put it on a barge and you send it for processing somewhere else. All of that involves the release of fossil fuels that is just contributing to the overheating of the planet instead of keeping the carbon in the forest and in the trees. I want to flip the lens a bit here from what the trees are doing to the climate and the carbon to what sort of the climate does to the trees. How vulnerable 
are older forests to fires, floods, other disturbances that we're going to be seeing more of in climate change? Yeah, so we're pretty close to a tipping point in the way ecosystems are dealing with climate change. And resilience is a concept in conservation biology that is associated with how much a, of stressors an ecosystem can handle. The more stressors you put on an ecosystem, just like us, the more we are stressed out by daily activities, the more we're prone to flipping to a different uh, psychological state. But in this case, we're talking about a forest that if you pile onto it, logging, cattle grazing, mining, off-road vehicles, climate change, you stack all of those up, then the forest can't handle that. It's not within their evolutionary history. They're quite resilient to being able to handle natural disturbances. But when you pile the disturbance on like this and you accumulate that in a very rapid time frame, you're going to get changes. The old forests are better positioned to handle those changes because of the variety. And in nature, we know Variety is the spice of life. The more species you have present, the better the chance of being resilient compared to a plantation, which is a monoculture of the same trees in the same age class that is very prone to fire and insect outbreaks. Now, you've done a lot of research on fire intensity. Could you explain how clear cutting affects the severity of fires? Yeah, absolutely. We've looked at thousands of fire records over four decades in the United States, for example. And what we found is that it's the combination of extreme fire weather, droughts, high winds, triple digit temperatures that we're seeing in places, in combination with industrial logged landscapes that we see these big fires that have uncharacteristically large high severity patches where most of the trees are killed. And it's because of the logging slash that's left behind that acts as a kindling. Think about this as if you were camping. You know, you're doing a campfire, you're just getting started. You're not going to put a six-foot diameter log on your fire pile and expect that to burn immediately. You're going to start with kindling, the small stuff, the branches. And that's what those industrial log landscapes are. There are a lot of slash left. There's trees that are all the same age. They're very young. Their canopies are all touching. And so when a fire comes through, it torches the place. Now, by contrast, what we learned from our analysis, and this was published in a peer-reviewed journal, is that the areas that were in protected areas, like national parks, wilderness, they burned with characteristic fire regimes that there was a little bit of high severity, but mostly it was low and moderate severity burn patches, which is the way nature designed those forests. So by having those areas protected, we're actually seeing fire behaving properly Whereas in the industrial log landscape, especially when it combines with climate chaos, we're seeing fire misbehaving. And what about the water in old forests? What do those trees and the ecosystems that they are part of do to the water in a, in a regional climate? Well, you know, everything's connected in nature, right? So the trees are not only absorbing carbon, but they're also giving water back to the atmosphere through the process of evapotranspiration, they help to regulate our precipitation patterns. And they also anchor the soils so that we don't get sediment runoff into our streams that kill salmon runs. They also, uh, the old growth forest is a cooler, relatively cooler, moister place than a clear cut. 
those trees hang on to their moisture for longer periods during the summertime and provide some moisture for everything that depends on that, lichens and fungi and all kinds of species in the rainforest that need those moisture conditions it's because of the trees. And what we've learned is that when we cut down these forests, it disrupts, discombobulates that feedback system between the trees taking up water and then releasing it back into the atmosphere and we can change the climate that way. We've already seen this on multiple occasions in Amazonia where deforestation has resulted in unprecedented droughts and the uh, tropical rainforest switching from a sink absorbing carbon to a source of carbon where droughts and fires are occurring in the rainforest because we've changed that atmosphere terrestrial feedback system that the trees are the intermediary in exchanging water with the atmosphere. It kind of reminds me of something in uh, the strategic review of forests that our province has just been looking at, um, looking at old growth forests, talking about a paradigm shift between uh, the idea that forests are something we can completely understand to the idea that actually forests and their ecosystems are so complex we may not understand them. Um, what are your thoughts on that as you describe how interconnected all of this is? Well, it's a little of both. I mean, as I mentioned earlier in the call, I learned something new every time I go into these forests. It's just an open book and we don't have all the pages figured out. I mean, you've got to be humble in nature too. There's always surprises. There's always new discoveries. Carbon 10 years ago wasn't really the hot topic. It is now. And, you know, it was new discoveries. It was people out on the ground doing field work. And, yeah, you know, we need to learn a lot more about these ecosystems, but we do know enough about how to properly care and steward them. And, you know, it's obvious that when we clear cut these forests, it's not in their best interest. It's not in our best interest because we're connected to the health of those ecosystems. And the more we deforest and degrade our forest around the planet in British Columbia, in the United States, in the tropics, the worse we are going to make climate change. That is really clear cut, pun intended. Uh, we know that association <laughs> and we're going to learn more about the severity of climate chaos here really soon. If we don't do something within the next decade or so, it's going to get a lot worse. And forests are the way to bridge us to a clean, renewable energy economy that's not dependent on fossil fuels. They are buying us time and we're running out of time. We're running the clock and we speed it up when we cut down these forests. I understand that in Oregon and Washington state, old growth isn't being logged very much anymore. How did that change happen there? Well, it is still being logged, but it's not being logged as much. And it's the passing of administrations that really worries me. And we've had you know, administrations that have come in and put in protections and administrations that have come in and tried to roll them back. And it's really unfortunate that conservation isn't a bipartisan issue at this point. It really needs to be. But nonetheless, uh, the re main reason why there was a big drop off in uh, mature and old growth forest logging in the Pacific Northwest was the, uh, the ecosystem had collapsed to the point where there was only about 15 to 20 percent of the old forest remaining. Most of it was on federal lands. As a consequence, we started to lose the spotted owl. We started to lose our salmon runs, the marble merlet. The ecosystem was connected on so many levels. We saw that in the early 1990s and to the wisdom 
of the administration at the time, which was uh, President Bill Clinton, we got the forest uh, management plan for the Northwest that uh, slowed down substantially the amount of old growth logging in the region. And to the credit of the resiliency of the communities in our region, the Pacific Northwest, they were able to adapt. There was a lot of pain in the process. There are still some in very rural areas that are struggling, but by and large, the economy did not go off the cliff. And what we got was a more robust economy and an economy that was more in tune to what the ecosystem can provide. So in your mind, where does protecting old growth forest rank when it comes to Mm -hmm. climate solutions? I would co-rank it with getting off of fossil fuel emissions. They're companion strategies. I mean, even if I had this magic wand and said, hey, I got this great energy source, doesn't pollute the environment, no emissions, we're off of fossil fuels forever. We would still have a lag in the uh, atmosphere. That lag will take centuries before the climate restabilizes, before the changes to our ocean restabilize. So the carbon that we put up in the atmosphere today will affect future generations for millennia. And so we've got to do this in sequence together, the forest bias time so that we could get our ingenuity going and get the kinds of energy systems at a scale big enough to get us off of fossil fuels. The forests are the bridge to letting that become a reality. And if we cut them down, that reality goes away and climate severity really goes off the charts. Dominic De La Sala, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me on your show, and I hope you stay cool. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy, and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. We asked the B.C. government if it plans to stop old-growth logging. It said in a statement that nearly 200,000 hectares of old-growth forests across the province have been deferred. That means logging is paused there while the province works on a new old-growth strategy, including government-to-government discussions with Indigenous communities. Elsewhere, old-growth harvest continues. Nearly 20 years ago, New Zealand put an end to logging of what are called native forests on public land. The fight to get there was long, and we've reached someone who is part of it. Dean Bajent-Mercer is now a forest campaigner with the environmental group Forest and Bird. We reached him in Auckland. Hello, how are you? I'm well. Take me back to 1997. You're occupying the forest. What was happening there? Well, a group of friends, there were 24 of us, we crept into the forest in the middle of the night in the drizzle and we walked for hours and hours on unmarked areas uh, to put up tents um, and we stayed hidden for a few days before then we announced our occupation both to the loggers and to the country. 
And the way we did it is through media, obviously, but we also put stapled notices on these ancient trees on the front line of the logging, saying that the forest was occupied and that cutting down any trees would endanger people's lives. We also had white ribbons around those trees. What drove you in that moment to push for changes to what was being logged there? Well, we were. a friend of mine told me that logging was continuing and, and it was happening in such a remote place. Most of the country of New Zealand, most people had no idea it was going on. So firstly, we had to find out really if it was true. So we sent in a reconnaissance group and they came back with these stories of ancient trees being cut down and being moved in five-ton pieces to sites where uh, they, they could be moved by trucks to sawmills. And this absolutely horrified and disgusted us because despite the romanticism from other parts of the, the world, New Zealand has very little ancient forest left, particularly ancient unlogged forest. So there's probably some comparisons closely with um, Canada in that respect. I know you have uh, different species there than we have here, but what are your really big trees like? Oh, we have <laughs> we have trees that are so ancient that they were around before dinosaurs in, in terms of their fossil record. So we have a tree called the uh, Kahikatea, where pterodactyls may have even nested in them. And some of these huge trees, other orchids live on them, ferns. So life grows on life grows on life in these ancient big trees. And of course, when there's a big storm, a branch may break off. That causes a little hole for rot to set into the wood that goes down inside the trunk. And so you get these hollows inside the ancient trees. And there can be all sorts of forest parrots and parakeets, geckos, all sorts of things that live within the ancient trees, as well as on the hanging gardens that live in the huge branches way above um, the head height of people walking underneath. So this logging was ongoing in forests that you were wanting to protect. And what happened as you held up this blockade to the loggers that were doing their jobs? Firstly, we were very clear in our minds that our attack was against the company and the government for allowing us to happen and not the individual loggers themselves. So they were greeted with boxes of chocolate. Uh, the first day, and that was made really clear to them. Initially, we were focused totally on the forests and the ecosystems and the threatened species in there and and protecting them um, well into the future. And that got a lot of the public on board. And then we had a new group member, Sean Weaver. He came in and he said, hey, you've got to care also about the people of the area. And he proposed a regional development package that we could ask for as well as the end of the logging. So we were fighting both for the forest and for those communities to find a well-rounded resolution uh, to the problem. And by creating a solution and presenting that in a forthright way to the government during an election campaign, we gave them a solution and a way out. And they ended up putting up more than $120 million. Is that right? That's right. It was it was a huge win. The story itself involves a lot of um, sleazy PR practices, a lot of political attacks, all sorts of crazy things happened. This was not a clear-cut kind of thing. It was a really crazy time. But in the end, the logging itself ended up being a national uh, election issue. And a government fell because they wanted to continue this logging. And in came a Labour government, the leader of which was Helen Clark. And their idea 
was that they would stop the logging and implement the regional development package that we had asked for. And that's what happened in the end. And so that was the end of all logging of native trees, indigenous old growth trees, on publicly owned land in New Zealand. Now, in this region of Canada, logging, including old growth logging, is a big industry that supports tens of thousands of jobs and whole communities. I'm wondering how important logging was to livelihoods on the west coast of New Zealand at that time. It was probably proportionately just as important. And we have gone through decades and decades of wars, basically, environmental wars to stop logging since the 1940s. And it had really come to a head. We had to draw the line. And those people and those communities have gone on to do other things. And ironically, the regional development package that was put forward for the end of the logging, that's actually been used during COVID to help support local businesses as well. So you can't really see into the future far enough to understand how good things can be or how useful they can be. But once you make the decision to stop logging, then you can make the pathways forward. So it really works for everyone. Now, there is still a forestry industry in New Zealand today, logging plantations of pine and fir, which are exotic species there. But Canada is a much bigger player when it comes to forestry. Despite those differences, what lessons do you think might apply from the New Zealand experience, either here or other countries that still log old growth? We don't get second chances with old growth areas. You know, from what I can tell, Canada is on the edge of really big decisions. Really, we should have stopped old growth logging across the world last century. So ways forward is so important for people, for the waterways, for the environment and for the climate. And so you've got to pull out all the stops to come to a really good solution because we are actually all depending on that. It's not just the people who are protesting. Dean Bridget Mercer, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That's it for us this week. Now, if you're interested in the science of wildfires, check out World on Fire. It's a podcast from our colleagues in Edmonton, hosted by the CBC's Adrian Lamb and fire scientist Mike Flanagan. Thanks this week to the team. Associate producer Serena Renner. Producer Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.